Hey, this is Scott with a warning about this episode. Some of the content may be triggering and isn't suitable for children. So if you have kids in the car, you might want to skip this one or listen to it later. Okay, here we go. I was watching a video online recently. I don't remember where it was, probably in a subreddit. It was recorded on a security camera in some business. There's no sound, but you can pretty much tell what's going on. These two men are standing there, and they're obviously in some kind of an argument. You know how even when you can't hear what someone's saying, it's easy to see that they're upset just because of their body language. That's what this was. I don't know if they were two customers, or a manager and a customer, doesn't really matter, but they were angry, and they were getting up in each other's face, but neither of them had touched the other one yet. It looked like it might evolve into a fist fight, but for now, it was just a verbal confrontation. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, a third person enters the view of the camera. He comes up behind one of the guys, and from behind, hauls off and closed fist punches him right in the head, and he's out cold. Of course, he never had a chance to defend himself or even brace for the hit, because he never saw it coming. That's what's called a sucker punch. It just comes out of nowhere and knocks you right out. That's kind of what we're talking about in today's podcast episode. But this story has nothing to do with a physical fight or anyone being hit in the head. I'm talking about an emotional sucker punch. This is when someone looks you in the eye and they deliver some kind of news that you were not expecting at all. And what they just told you suddenly changes your whole life. As in, you know nothing is going to be the same going forward. That's what happened to Victoria one Saturday morning when a former neighbor showed up on her doorstep. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? You grew up with both parents and your brother. Pretty normal childhood? Yeah, seemed like a really idyllic childhood, for sure. What was, what was kind of, how would you describe your family when you were a kid? We were kind of considered the perfect family. It was kind of the household where all our friends could come over to, was welcome. Uh, anyone who came over was always welcome for dinner and just sort of brought in as a member of the household. and Just an open door policy. Your parents were married for 49 years when your mother died. Yes. Can you talk about the circumstances of her death? My parents lived next door to uh, really close family friends. 
I was talking to my mom on the phone one day and she mentioned that they were going over for dinner to the neighbor's house to catch up because they hadn't seen them in a while. And the next thing I knew, I got a phone call saying that my mom had had died. And it turns out she was over there visiting. And when the mom was making dinner, my mom was talking to their daughter and had a brain aneurysm mid-sentence and fell to the ground while talking to this young girl. And she was dead before she hit the ground, probably. I can't imagine how traumatic that must have been. And this family, you're, the neighbors, that were they're, they're the walkers. The walkers, yeah. yeah. And this was unexpected completely? Did she have any history of uh, health issues that would lead to this? She had no health issues. She was 65 and no medication, hadn't been to a doctor recently because nothing was wrong. My parents went camping all the time with the walkers. Um, my mom was very active and happy and healthy. Nobody expected anything to go wrong. How close were they with these neighbors? I mean, were these were they just really, really good friends or... Well, we didn't call them friends. We called them family. So anytime there was a, a function, like for Christmas, we always had the walkers come over. And we went camping, the walkers were coming. And we actually would joke with them. We'd say, you guys aren't friends, you're family. Of course, you're going to come to this wedding. You're family. So they were always included in all our family events. And, and we were in all of their family events. They lived right next door. And I actually lived a few hours away. So I had rushed down that night. And... um they came over the next night. They just called us and said, don't make dinner. I guess they're so thoughtful that they, they knew we weren't going to be able to make food and take care of our daily routines. And they actually showed up one by one, all four of them, one carrying a casserole, one carrying a salad, and they just put it on our table, hugged us, just getting choked up thinking about the, the love that they showed our family. And then they just left so we could have dinner by ourselves. And they came back and picked up all the dishes. And it was just, that's what family does. That's incredible. And you said all four of them, it was, it was Mr. and Mrs. Walker, mm -hmm. and then they, they had two daughters. Yeah, and at that time, they would have been around 20 years old and maybe 18, 17. How did your dad handle that following the death of his wife? Not really all that well at the beginning. I mean, that was his soulmate. They had been together since, my mom was 17 when they met, and they had been soulmates and even the whole family like the way we referred to it is that my dad just worshipped my mom my mom could do no wrong and he was just heartbroken to lose his his best friend in life and he was he had mentioned he had been so excited that in a year they'd be celebrating 50 years together and it really upset him to have that taken away from him Within a few months we decided to spread my mom's ashes out um at our favorite camping site and we camped there all the time with the walkers they came with us and they stood with us while we spread her ashes in the lake and um, just had a little kind of a ceremony and a support us and my dad through this difficult time. And it just, it felt right to have them there. The way you talk about them, I can see why you would consider them family and not yes. just next door friends. Absolutely. Following my mom's death, my dad wasn't able to stay living in the house anymore. My, my brother actually owned the house and was going through some financial difficulties and had to sell the house. And my dad, my dad was one of those people who would give away his money or lend his money knowing he wouldn't get it back if he could help somebody. And he had done that to a fault, to a point where he didn't have enough for himself for retirement. 
So when I found out that he couldn't live there anymore, knowing he couldn't afford his own place, my husband and I talked about it and decided he's done so much for everybody. We're going to build a basement suite and just let him live there. So we spent about $60,000 building a beautiful suite for him. And he offered to pay us rent. And of course, I'm not going to take any rent from my dad. I said, this is just your home. This isn't your suite because he called it our house. I said, no, it's, it's all of our house. It's yours too. This is your home. And we built him a suite and, and he lived down in our basement suite for a couple of years. And then he ended up meeting a nice lady and, and uh, is now living at her house, but still has the suite here with all of his stuff in it in case there's a time he ever needs to come back. So that kind of sets everything up. If we fast forward six years, and that means this year, March of 2021, mm -hmm. you had a knock on your door on a Saturday morning. I did. An unexpected knock on my door. And I opened the door, and it was uh, John and Grace Walker, the next-door neighbors that I know and love that I hadn't really hadn't talked to. In the last couple of years, we hadn't talked nearly as much. There'd been kind of a disconnect, which... At that point, I thought made sense because the two daughters had graduated, gone to college. I knew they were busy with all that kind of stuff. And they didn't live right next door to you anymore either, right? They were, they were like a few hours away? Four hours away. So when I opened the door and saw them standing there, I thought, oh, uh, maybe they're just driving through. Maybe they're heading somewhere. And they thought, I'll just pop in and say a quick hello as we're driving through this town of Victoria's. But then I saw the look on her face, and she said, I have some news, and it's not good. And so I asked her to sit down on the couch. And she looked me in the eye, and she said, it is bad. It's actually really bad. And my first thought was, one of her daughters is sick. Something terrible has happened, and she's coming for help. And that's when she said, she looked me in the eye, and she said, your dad molested our daughter for four years when they lived next door to us. And I can't even describe the feeling that went through my body of complete and utter shock. I can feel it right now as I'm talking about it. It was not just unexpected. It, it took my brain a moment to even understand it. And as soon as it did, I, the weirdest thing is, is I immediately went, yeah, that makes sense. I think part of me kind of suspected that my dad and, and Michaela had been a little too close. What made you suspect that? I don't think that I consciously did, but when she said it, it was like a couple of pieces of the puzzle went together. Because my dad liked to go quadding when we went camping. And Michaela was a bit of a tomboy and liked to quad. And the two of them would go off quadding by themselves all the time. And for people that don't know what quadding is... Oh, four-wheeling, ATVing out in the country. <laughs> okay. Yeah, out in the bush. So, yeah, camping and four-wheeling down a trail, and, and so, they, yeah. so they went off together. Quite often, because they were the two people who liked to do it the most. And that didn't click for me, because I didn't think there was anything wrong. But then, once I found out, I was like, oh, yeah, all these things that seemed so normal kind of clicked. You have to rethink everything. It, it's been a process. It, it, it's not just been a process with just knowing that the two of them would go quadding together. And he was molesting her when she was 
11 till she was 15. And they would come back to camp together, and my dad would sit by the fire and have a drink with her parents and accept their adoration and their love. I, I don't even know how a human being could do that to somebody else who's supposed to be family. It kind of makes me think of, you ever see the movie The Sixth Sense? Yeah. You know, you watch it the first time. First time I saw it, you watch, watch it and you really don't, you don't know the big, the big twist at the end. But then after, when you find out, you got to kind of watch the whole thing again to see what, what did I miss? All those clues were there and right in the open and I, not suspecting anything, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even notice those things. But wow. in having in rethinking that you got to you got to picture all of those things in your head. Wow, that really wasn't what I thought it was. Wow, that's a fantastic analogy. I I didn't think of that. You're exactly right. Because I've spent the last few months with going over my entire childhood, rethinking everything I thought about who my parents were, not just my dad, but did my mom know? Did she suspect? Like this seemed to be a big secret that was kept. Th this had happened years before. How did it come out in their family? Yeah, it had actually, at the time that, that um, they came and talked to me, it had actually ended 10 years prior. And they had just found out three years prior because Michaela was training to be a police officer. She had gone to college and she had decided to go through the courses. And at the end of it, she passed all of the exams, but the last thing she had to do was a psych evaluation. And she flew through it just fine, but one of the last questions was, have you ever been the victim of a sexual assault? And she had never spoken a word about it, but she said, I just sat there going, I can't lie. And she said, for the very first time in my entire life, I actually spoke the words, yes. That's when it all ended, and they said, like, we can't let you be a police officer when you have unresolved trauma, and they sent her for counseling. And she failed the exam, and she is not able to be a police officer. She has to wait two more years to try again. She started going to therapy for a little while first and got ready and got prepared, and she actually wrote out a letter to her parents, and then she asked them if she could read it to them, and she asked them not to can you not talk until I'm completely done? Because she just needed to get it all out at once to them. And I can't imagine what that must have felt like for them to hear that from her, especially for someone they knew, trusted, loved, and considered one of their, one of their family members. That's a day that they'll always remember, for sure, not in a good way. When this happened, Michaela was from ages 11 to 15, Mm -hmm. And your dad was age 65 to 69. Yes. Michaela and I have spoken about this quite a number of times on the phone since. And she said she thinks she was around 11. She's a little fuzzy with the exact years, but she's got a general idea. When she was around 11, they would go quadding. And she just sort of noticed when they'd go back to the truck while she was taking off her muddy clothes, he would need to reach into the truck or something and instead of just waiting for her to be done he would push his body up against the back of her body and reach through in a way that made her feel like something was wrong and then it escalated to if she would like 
give him a ride, like a double, where he would be behind her on the same quad, he would say, oh, my hands are cold. And he would warm them up by putting them underneath her shirt, but on her bare stomach. And after she, because she said she thought that was weird, but she didn't, she didn't know. She didn't know how to stop it. She didn't know how to say anything. This is like someone she considers almost a grandpa. You know, after a few times of doing that, it ended up moving up and then also moving down till he was touching her inappropriately. And eventually this escalated to rape. It did. It did. She said that she stopped by the house thinking that my parents were home and she was walking home from school and didn't realize my mom was away and knocked on the door and it was my dad. She said that the thing he used to get her, there's two things. First of all, when when he was still, because it was molestation for the first couple of years and then it was rape for this, the next couple. If they would go quadding and she didn't want to allow that, he threatened that if she didn't do it, he would do it to her little sister. So she felt like she was protecting her little sister by doing this. Then it escalated to he let her into the bedroom and they when she stopped by that day. And then when she didn't want to do it anymore, he threatened that he would hurt her little sister if she didn't continue to comply with that. So she continued to comply for the next year or two. What a position for a young girl to be in. Absolutely. It was, it was no win for her. No. She she didn't know what he would be capable of. Yeah. Did Michaela's parents confront him directly? Yes, and I'm so proud of them. When they came to my house that morning, that Saturday morning in March, Grace told me that she had just come back from my dad's house because this was the whole reason for them driving four hours to my city. And John waited in the car and let Grace go in because as a father, he said, you can't let me be in the same room with that man for this confrontation. I can't be there. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida. So I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com what, or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code WHAT or going to cookunity.com slash WHAT. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. 
That little bit each day adds up and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what code 25what. And so Grace went in. My dad welcomed her in thinking it was a visit. And she sat down and she said, I know what you did to Michaela. I know what you've done. And he started by denying it. No, 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 I didn't. I didn't. And she said, I'm not here asking you. I'm telling you, I know what you did. And she said his shoulders slumped and he said, you're right. We were in love. I couldn't help myself. And um, while he admitted it, he didn't admit it fully. But she said it just made her feel better to let him know she knew. The last words she said to him was, you took my daughter's virginity, you took her career, I hate you, I despise you, and I've never hated anyone so much in my life. And she left to come to my house. Did he ever do anything with the younger sister? Yes, it turns out that he did. Grace had been, um, she had got some plums uh, that she she had in her house one day, and she knew my dad loved plums. So she said to the youngest, Brittany, she says, oh, can you take this bowl of plums over to Ken and, and give those? He's working in the back shop next door. And so Brittany walked in there and gave him the plums, and he gave her a hug. And when he gave her a hug, he put his hands down the front of her pants. And she pushed him away. She's a little firecracker. She pushed him away, and she said, Something to the effect of, go fuck yourself, you fucking fucker, kind of thing. And she ran out of the house, and she ran back into the house where her mom and her sister were, and she didn't say a word, which I think is is very normal in that situation, though the rest of us can't understand it. I, I do, I understand it. it. It is kind of hard to understand, but then, but you're right. You know, she's a child. Yeah. She's embarrassed. She's confused. She doesn't yeah. understand why did this happen? Is it somehow my fault? Did I yeah. do something? And so at that, when that happened, Michaela hadn't said anything either. Nobody had said a word. Later, when um, John and Grace had, they knew about what had happened to Michaela, but they hadn't talked to Brittany about it yet. And when they finally got ready to talk to her about it, they had asked her, has, you know, has anything ever happened to you? And she had said no. And 
they asked her a second time. Three times they have asked her in her in the last few years, has anything ever happened to you? No. Then they sat her down and said, we need to tell you something. Your sister has been, was molested. And Brittany said, yeah, was it Ken? Because she knew exactly who it was. And that's when she admitted that he had done it to her too. And Grace and Michaela both said they remember her coming back from dropping off the plums and they knew something was weird about her. She was just quiet, but they just thought she was just in a mood or something. I'm wondering, at that time, Michaela knew about Ken and what he'd done to her. True. I wonder if he had, if, if she suspected when Brittany got back home that something along those lines had happened. Yeah, I wonder what went through her mind. This ended when Michaela turned 15. Mm-hmm. Why did it stop then? She said my dad actually ended it. She said that he told her that she was now a young woman and ready to get a boyfriend and that he wanted to give her the freedom to go and have a normal relationship because the idea for when they were doing all of this and my dad would say we were in love, we were going to run away together. And Michaela told me later that he kept telling her, we're going to run away, we're going to get married, and you're going to have my babies. And I guess when she finally became of age, he realized this is not going to happen. And so he set her free and um, told her, you know, you're a young woman now. You need to go find somebody your age. This had all happened before your mom died. Yep. Do you think she had any suspicion of anything? Well, I think so. Looking back now. Because Michaela and my dad were actually quite close. And they had started, when my dad got his first cell phone, Michaela had, you know, shown him how to text and they started texting each other. And they texted each other a little too much for my mom's liking. And I remember asking my dad, like, why are you and Michaela always texting? And at the time, he said to me, well, her parents are really strict and she's not allowed to do anything when she gets home from school. She just has to go study and stay in her room. So she has nobody to talk to. So I'm like a father figure to her. I'm giving her life advice and I'm just like supporting her. And it sounded so innocent to me. I had no idea what they were texting. And she said to me later, she says, yeah, your dad kept telling me, don't forget to delete these texts when we're done. Don't forget to delete these when we're done. So what do you do when you find this out? I mean, this has to hit you like a ton of bricks. I don't think I've ever been through something as traumatic as this. When I lost my mom, I mean, I had only spoken to her a few hours before, and to have her just pulled away like that, all I kept saying is the shock of that was the worst part. But now when this happened, the shock and trauma of this, I don't even know how to describe it. I have to say, I didn't feel an emotion or or I don't think that I was thinking straight for six weeks afterwards. I had memory issues. I had, there was one day I was doing something and I thought about it be something about it being 2021. And my brain just went, is it 2021? Is that the current year? Does our current year start with a two? Was last year 2020? I would remember if last year was 2020. I, I couldn't figure it out because my brain was so overloaded. Like you said, rethinking everything from the beginning that I couldn't come up with the most basic 
things for probably a good six weeks. Were you in therapy at, at that time? I called um, a psychologist immediately and, and luckily found somebody who could take me right away and started, I think, twice a week at first and then down to once a week. And I'm going to recommend anybody going through any kind of trauma, whether it's this or anything else, that's what got me through this. That's what helped me not just figure out my feelings around it and how to deal with it, but to realize what types of things weren't my problem to deal with and to take things off of my plate so that I could deal with my own stuff. It was fabulous. It still is. I'm still seeing somebody and, and working on it. And did they tell you that it's normal to not be able to think of things that are pretty common, like the year, because you're thinking about so many other things, your brain can only take so much? Is that? Yeah, she explained that to me. Because another thing is, um, one of our employees asked me one day for a clipboard. And I had to look at it and I go, I, uh, what, can you remind me what a clipboard is? Like, I know what a clip is. I know what a board is. How do those two things go together? And she thought I was joking. But my, when I told my psychologist this, because the first thing I did was Google symptoms of Alzheimer's. And while I was Googling that, all I could think of is, oh, that's very convenient that Alzheimer's started immediately when I went through this trauma. Like, obviously, this must be related, but I still had to Google it because, because I just couldn't think straight. And when I talked to my psychologist about it, she said, not only is that normal, but if you weren't having these kinds of memory problems, I would be concerned. She says, right now, your brain is trying to go through your entire life and recalculate everything you've ever known about Every It's a huge job. So normally, when you have to remember something simple, like what year we're in, your brain just reaches back and grabs that information. But it is so overworked that when you ask it for something simple, it just doesn't have the energy to reach back for that simple little thing. And it just made me feel better to know that that would get better. It's just like a muscle. If you overwork a muscle, you can't expect it to work right. Did you contact other family members or how did you proceed after you found out this, this news? Well, I knew that this was going to change everything. Because my dad is one of six siblings, and he's very close with all of his brothers and sisters. They, again, they camp together, and they have one of the family members, two of them have cabins. He goes and spends the summers with them, and I don't know if, you know, what's going to happen after this news came out. So the first thing I did was called his closest sister, which is Lisa, and uh, I said to her, I said, I have some news, and it's going to change a lot. I said, my dad isn't who we think he is. And then I told her what I had just heard. And she sat and listened to it. And when I was done, she said, Oh, sweetie, I knew who he was. He did it to me too, when I was a kid. And then she continued and said, He did it to our little sister too. There's two of them that he's done this to. For you, that's got to be the second wow, shock. Even, uh, yeah, the second wave. Yeah, the aftershock. And it was it was not what I was expecting to hear. And it turns out that that wasn't even just a small thing. I mean, with, with Lisa, she says, you know, I, I, I remember him touching me. I remember a few things. But with the younger one, it was actual rape. She was nine. And he had, um, he was in his 20s, early 20s, probably 21, and had come home, um, just home visiting his mom and dad and little siblings. And 
they didn't have enough beds, so they put him in a sleeping bag on the floor of the living room. And when the youngest sister got up to pee on her way back, he said, hey, come here and show your brother some love. Show me how much you love me. And so she got in the sleeping bag with him, craving love, and didn't know what it was that happened. She didn't know what sex was. She didn't know what intercourse was. And he did it two or three times over the weekend to her. And it wasn't until she found out what sex was. She's like, yeah, that's what my brother did to me in the sleeping bag when I was nine and to show him that I loved him. She didn't say anything at the time either. No, those two sisters did talk about it when they were kids, but they didn't tell family members. They kept it to themselves, just like all of them did. What about Lisa's husband? Well, that's what she mentioned is she said, she goes, I've always loved your dad so much. She says, that's why I married my first husband, Robert. She says, he he reminded me so much of your dad. She says, you know how your dad, when he kisses, when he gives you a hug and he gives you a kiss, he always holds on a little long. He always kind of hovers a little too close. She says, when I met Robert, I just noticed that he kind of did the same thing and reminded me of your dad. So she says, I think that's what attracted me, that familiarity. And she said, she asked me, she goes, I have to ask you something. She says, years and years ago, your mom told me something. She told me that Robert touched you when you were a kid. Is that true? And I had to say yes. And she's like, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And I continued on. I said, well, yeah, it was touching, but it was a a lot more than touching. And I described what had happened, and I won't get into details here. I don't think your audience wants to hear. I don't want to trigger anybody else who's been through it, so we'll keep things vague. He was babysitting me and his daughter for some reason, and he left the room and came back wearing nothing but a bathrobe and laid down on the couch. And the assault went for, I would say, 20 minutes of different things. I remember pain. Um, this was not a touching incident. So as I'm describing, and I described it to her in detail, and all she kept saying was, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I had no idea. She says, I literally thought that he had maybe given you a hug and touched you inappropriately during a hug. I did not know that was what happened. It felt good to talk about it and to finally tell somebody. I had told my mom briefly. It felt good to get that validation of what I had gone through. And a couple of days later, she called me again and she said, I just talked to your other cousin. It turns out he did it to her too. And in fact, her story was word for word what happened to you, she said. So Robert didn't only molest you. No. I mean, obviously, thinking is just, it's kind of common sense that someone that has those attractions and acts on them, that's a lifelong thing, right? It's not like something you get cured of. Exactly. It's not something that, oh, there just happens to be this opportunity, so I'm just going to do this thing once. I don't think that a normal married man uh, of his age would be attracted to, you know, a six-year-old. I was probably around six. And your dad's older sister mm-hmm. married, I don't know, I don't know her husband's name, mm-hmm. but it turns out 
he was a pedophile as well. That is the only one that was kind of an open family secret. My mom talked about it all the time, that her second husband, she already had two kids. And when she, after she married her second husband, the whole family just knew, suspected that he had molested those two kids. Does it still surprise you that pedophilia just runs rampant in this family? It, it did at first. And now that we've uncovered seven instances of my dad doing something to people, and there are six more involving other family members as well. And I think what happens in a family is when you allow one pedophile in and you don't say anything and you keep the secrets and you don't let people talk about it, it's like a disease that just festers and it continues because of the secrets. And obviously, I'm, I'm not a doctor or psychologist. Neither one of us is. Yeah. But it seems like an important distinction that being a pedophile, just having that pedophilia Mm-hmm. is not in itself a crime. Right. It certainly carries with it a really bad social stigma, but being attracted to minors is not breaking the law. But when you when they take action on that, that, of course, is illegal and, and carries with it all that responsibility. Is that how you look at it? Absolutely. I couldn't say it better myself. Um, it's not my dad's fault that he has pedophilia. We can't technically diagnose him, but we have to make an assumption that he has a form. There are different forms of pedophilia. He must have one form of it. And it's not his fault that he has that. And that's what my psychologist had said. She says, we want to label everybody as good or bad, but sometimes good people do bad things. Bad people do good things. Everybody lies somewhere in between. He's not bad because he has this attraction, but he was fully aware of all of his actions and how hurtful they were. And he still continued to do them and hide it from people. Make sure he hid it so you know he knew he was doing wrong, but the attraction itself is not. I I don't blame him for having that. What surprised me the most is I think because there was one in the family that there happened to be more. And I think because, like I mentioned before, there's that familiarity that another pedophile seems familiar to others. I wonder if your dad knew that those two brother-in-laws were also pedophiles. He, yeah, he did know about the one that was an open family secret. Uh, I didn't tell about my molestation when I was six. I didn't tell my mom for a few years afterwards. I probably didn't tell her till I was 10 or 11. And she basically said, well, it's too late to do anything now. You should have told me back then. And nothing happened. And my aunt had already divorced him and he was out of the family, but they did have a daughter together. So when I talked to my aunt Lisa, she said, you know, your, your cousin is going through this, not just with your dad, because she loved your dad. And to find this out about your dad was horrible enough. But now she just found this out about her own dad at the same time. And I have to admit, I have a bit of guilt that comes along with telling my story because I know what I went through when I found out all of this. And then to realize that my story caused my cousin to go through the exact thing I'm going through, that was almost as hard to take as finding out about my dad. But it also made me feel good to get it out and into the light. Because I think the more we get 
the monsters into the light, the more we can protect ourselves from them. Have you confronted your dad directly about this? Yeah, it took me uh, probably a month before I even wanted to talk to him. But he still gets mail at my house. He's never changed his mailing address. So I had a stack of mail for him. And I thought, I, you know, I have to bring it over there. Maybe it's a good time to... The, the way it happened, actually, I was driving near his house and saw him walking. And up until that time, I had just seen him as a monster for the last four weeks. I'd referred to him as a monster and that I never wanted to see him. I never wanted to talk to him again. But I was driving and he was just walking along the road. And I saw him for the first time. And just that visual sight made me want to go see him. It humanized him again for me. So when I got the mail, I thought, you know, I do need to go and just hear his, not his side of it, because there's no his side of it. I just want to hear what he has to say for himself. So I texted him and said, can I come over and bring this and maybe we can have a chat? And he said, sure. And I drove over to his house. And before I got out of my car, I got my cell phone out and I hit record on a voice recorder. And I walked in and set it down on the table between us. And I said, so, what's new? Tell me what's going on. And just kind of let him talk. He started out, well, he did the same thing that he did when, when Grace, the mother, went over there to talk to him. He said, yeah, we got too close. Yeah, we couldn't keep our hands off of each other. He minimized it as much as he could. And I just kind of wanted to let him talk. And there was a lot of empty silences. But I, I did ask him, I said, yeah, but she was just a kid. Like she was 11. And he goes, oh, no, she was older than that. But not old enough, he said. And I'm like, there it is. It's the confession again. Like he's, he's owning up to this. I think he has no choice. I knew then and there that I, I have it on recording. My dad admitting he knew what he did was wrong and that he did it. And he doesn't know about that recording. No. Right? No, he doesn't. But it's in where you live, it's legal to record someone without having their consent, right? I know the laws are different in different places. Yep. We're a single party consent. Absolutely. So I told Michaela about the recording because the biggest thing that she, she hasn't gone to the police yet. She's been wanting to. And since March, she's been saying soon, soon, soon. And I think that her biggest concern, and I think this is a normal concern, is that she's not going to be believed or that he's going to get, get off of this, that he's going to be found not guilty. And she said, I'm going to put my story out there and then I'm going to feel invalidated if he's not convicted and people will think I'm a liar. And that's the thing that's holding her back. So as soon as I realized I had this on recording, I called her up and let her know. And she said, that gives me some peace. It gives me peace to know if anybody ever questions me, we have this kind of proof. And he might just, when confronted with criminal charges, he might just plead guilty anyway. I, I think so. Yeah, because he, he said, and I have that on recording as well, he said, I expect any day for them to come and get me. He says, I've told everybody, don't bail me out. Don't come get me. Just let me go. 
deal with what I have to deal with. I'll do whatever it is. And he's, he has offered to apologize to the family. He's offered to apologize to Michaela and to Grace. And they have both said, it's too late. Apologies were if you had wanted to apologize, if you felt bad, you wouldn't have waited until you were confronted to finally apologize. So that apology is now too late and it's not worth anything to us. How old is your dad now? 79. Do you think there's a chance that, I mean, I'm trying to think about it from his perspective. He's 79 years old. There's pretty much, I wouldn't, I don't want to say an open and shut case, but it's pretty Mm -hmm. obvious that he's guilty and he could be going to prison for a long time. Yep. Is there any concern that he might be suicidal? That was an immediate concern of many family members. It was a concern of mine as well. I don't wish for bad things for my dad, but I also have compassion for him. And at the beginning, I went back and forth between hating him and having compassion for him. And I think we need to have compassion for somebody, even someone who did the awful things he did, to be 79 and think that he may be going to prison for a long time. I can't imagine going to prison for one day. He could spend the rest of his natural life in prison. And if he goes in there, I mean, he's a target. He'll be kept separate, but there are gangbangers and murderers in there who will look at him as a piece of shit that needs to be taken out. Like he's considered lower than them in prison. So as much as, of course, the prison system would and should keep him safe, I can't imagine how that would feel for somebody to walk into a prison knowing that there are people there who want to kill you and be stuck there for years with them. Do you, the fact that you went in and made this recording of him admitting his guilt, Mm -hmm. do you feel any kind of sense of betrayal at all of him because he's your dad? No, I don't. Because I just don't think you're ever betraying somebody by telling the truth or getting the truth from somebody. I didn't trick him. I didn't ask him any questions. And to be honest, I recorded it because I knew it was going to be a deep conversation and that while I'm emotional during the conversation, I might not be remembering everything he says. And I wanted to have that recording. So later when I was thinking back, trying to remember what all we talked about, what all was said, just having that to listen back to and go, okay, that's the way that that was my actual intention at the time. I'd like to say I was a badass and trying to get a confession. Like that would be a much better story, but I'm I actually. wearing a wire. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but my reasoning for recording it was actually a more innocent reason. So the fact that I just happened to get it on recording, I don't feel guilty for. I have told Michaela the existence of the recording and I've also told her I'm not sharing it with her. I'm not sharing it with anybody. The only people who will get it will be if the police ask me for it. Like, I don't even need a warrant. Like, just ask me and I'll give it to them. But I'm not going to let her hear it because he didn't take full responsibility. And she doesn't need to hear that. And I don't think it would help her to listen to it. Where does it all stand now? Is he just kind of waiting day by day to see, to wait for her to go to the police? Yeah, that's where we're sitting. (laughs) One th- where it is sitting is he's scared to death. And that's what he says even in the recording. He is scared to death. As much as he's scared to death about the police showing up, he's also scared to death of the father showing up, John Walker. 
he says, he has told other family members who told me that his biggest fear, he says, every time he steps out the front door of his house, he's worried that John's going to be there to take him out. And he said, I wouldn't blame him. That's what I would do. Any father listening to this right now that has a daughter knows exactly, yes, that's the way you'd feel. Exactly. And Michaela has told her dad, don't do it. She says, you are my dad. You are going to walk me down the aisle one day. You are going to be there for the birth of my children. If you do this, I will lose you and he's not worth it. So she made him promise not to touch my dad. And he said, that is the only reason my dad is still alive right now. Good for her. That was a very smart thing for her to, to say. To I him. think so too. I, I have so much res- I had respect for these people before this. I didn't know they were capable of the grace that they have shown, the love that they have shown. They have been compassionate towards us as a family. They're the ones who went through the trauma, and yet they're trying to support us as we're going through learning about what happened. They're an incredible family that I think I couldn't love them or respect them more than I do. What's the message that you want to get across by telling this story? What do you want people to learn from this? I think that we all need to understand that this is so common. I think that this happens in a lot of different families. And we don't feel safe telling. That's why Michaela didn't tell. She didn't feel like she would be believed. We need to have support so that people can talk about this. Keeping secrets, like this family of mine has kept so many secrets, and that's why these monsters were able to continue to do what they were doing. And I can understand why we don't talk, but the freedom that I felt when I did talk about it, and the freedom that Michaela is getting from talking about it, if somebody out there can hear this story and actually, if it's safe for them to do so, if they have a safe adult, if it, it doesn't have to be your parents that you tell, you can talk to a counselor, you can talk to someone at school, like go to a, a friend and tell her parents and get somebody to listen, to talk about it, because the more we talk about it, the less it's going to happen. There are so many aspects of this story to discuss. If you have a question, an opinion, a comment, or anything to say about this story, the very best place to do that is in the podcast Facebook group. This is a private group of over 1,600 people, and all of them listen to this podcast. We have some great discussions going on over there, and there's no political debate. I'd love to have you join us there. Just go over to whatwasthatlike.com slash Facebook. And I have a couple of things I want to mention before we get to the listener story. First, the newest episode of Raw Audio is now live. This is the 17th episode of bonus exclusive content that features actual 911 calls and the stories that go with them. In this episode, a restaurant owner calls to report his daughter is missing. Okay, do you have any videos or anything in there where you can see a video, see if she was laying there? No, 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 no. we don't have any security camera in there, it's just uh, in the restaurant. A New York City police officer calls from home because his son is unresponsive. What did he hit his head on? What did he fall on? Concrete. Concrete? Are you having fun on his back on the floor? 
Huh? I don't want to bother you if you're if you're busy doing CPR, but I'm just trying to make sure we have all the information we need. He's on the floor. He's flat on his back. He's on the sofa. And an observant restaurant server becomes suspicious about a family. One of the kids is with a lot of bruises on his arms and on his uh, face. And the parent is not done uh, giving food for him, but is giving to the other kids that are with them. You can get full access to all of the 17 raw audio episodes, as well as future episodes, and you get the What Was That Like podcast ad-free just by becoming a supporter of the show for $5 a month. And your support tells me that you're enjoying the show. And that's one of the big things that keeps me going. You can sign up at whatwasthatlike.com support. Okay, I'm going to say the name of something and see if you've heard of it. It's called Good Pods. That's one word, G-O-O-D-P-O-D-S. The website is goodpods.com, but really it's an app that runs on your phone, and it works on both iPhone and Android. I've just started using it recently, but it seems like it has a lot of potential. The main idea is that you connect with other people, and if your podcast preferences are similar, you can find new podcasts to listen to, and there'll be shows that are right in line with what you like to listen to. You can subscribe to podcasts and listen to them right on the app. So it looks like it might be a great way to discover new shows. I've been hearing a lot of good stuff about it. If you try it out, let me know what you think. And if you ever want to message me, you can email me at scott at whatwasthatlike.com or if you want to send regular old snail mail, that goes to P.O. Box 5, Safety Harbor, Florida, 34695. And now, this week's listener story. Stay safe. I'll see you in two weeks. I remember most of this story, but some parts are hazy because I was almost six. It started when me, my mom, my three-year-old sister, my mom's friend, and my 15-year-old aunt went to the lake near us. We started packing up, and after swimming for a few hours, my mom took a cooler to the car while my aunt watched us pack up. My little sister started saying she didn't want to wear her life jacket to swim, but my mom already told her she had to keep it on while my mom was away packing up. And while my aunt wasn't looking... And she was packing up towels. My sister ran off angrily, screaming, I don't want my life jacket on. And I didn't pay any attention to her because I don't really do that when she's throwing a fit. And we weren't paying attention for about, like, two seconds when my mom came back and asked where my sister was. And that's when it hit me. And I looked down at my feet, and her life jacket is on the towel. So... Everybody starts running around crazy, like calling for her name, like calling out her name. And you just hear nothing. So what felt like an eternity. And then I started crying because that's what any six-year-old would do in that situation. When all of a sudden I hear my aunt screaming my mother's name. And I look over and there's just a group of people. And I walk over to the group of people. And I see my three-year-old sister laying there, not responding, and she's blue. And that is the scariest thing that I've probably ever seen in my entire life. 
And my mom was in shock when she got over there, of course. And my aunt kept trying to do CPR. There was a nurse there. And she had no pulse. But then they started doing CPR and a team uh, of firefighters and police officers got there. And they were able to bring her back to life. She was probably dead for about four or five minutes. But she is alive and okay now. And I'm so happy that she's alive and I'm so happy she pulled through. And she is one tough fighter. Uh...